We're starting Luke chapter 2 this morning, and the title is Make Room for Jesus. Make Room for Jesus. Luke chapter 2. And it's crazy because I've been thinking about this lately, and I was telling someone the other day, like when I was growing up, the predominant plot in most movies I viewed was like there's a dad who overworks. He's always at work, right? There's a child that is longing to spend time with his dad. The dad misses most of their child's sports practices and recitals. He tries to get there on time. He forgets. He tries to get there. Everyone's gone. The lights are off, you know. The child feels neglected and sad because dad is always working. Sometimes, you know, something intense usually happens, whether it's a death or a a turning point where the dad finally realizes he needs to make big changes with his life. He needs to make big changes because he realizes he has not made enough room for his child. He works all the time and neglects those who are the most important to him. And the movie usually ends with the dad doing something drastic like quitting his job or telling his boss off or, or moving away with his family to start a new life. But believe it or not, when I was a child, those movies actually made an impression on me. Like I remember being a kid watching these things, and it, it, it ingrained in me what not to do. You can learn a lot by what, you know, what people do, good examples, but you can also learn a lot by what people do that you shouldn't do. And when I have kids, I thought, like, when I was younger, I'm not going to neglect them. I don't want to miss their practices. I don't want to be like that dad. Don't put to the side those things that are important to them. Make room for them. Because before you know it, they're grown up, they're moved out on their, way, on their own, and you don't hear from them every day anymore. The title of today's message is Make Room for Jesus. Make Room for Jesus. You ever realize your life is so busy that you go a span of time without even like thinking about the spiritual aspect of life. And now maybe, maybe you're like super spiritual more than any of us in here, and you're like, no, it never happens. But the reality is, if we're honest, there are times where, even in our lives as believers, that we don't make room for what's important. We sometimes don't make room for who is important. And this is a convicting statement because we've all been there. And maybe someone would say, well, I'm close to perfect because I have my priorities perfectly lined up every day all the time. Sure you do. (laughs) Keep telling yourself that. But maybe some would say about their Christian lives, well, I always think of Jesus. I'm never not thinking of Jesus. I'm always focusing on the spiritual. I'm I'm never not praying, right? Right. (laughs) The truth is there are busy and chaotic moments in our lives. And these moments are exactly when we should make room for Jesus. What often happens, though, is that we're so busy and caught up in the drama called life that he is left out. Sometimes the most important things are the things we neglect. Sometimes the most important things are the things we neglect. You know, it's like, it's like being a believer. Some believers miss the whole point of why we are alive and what we're generally called to do. Share the gospel. Be a light. Be an example. I was talking to someone else the other day, and, and they're like, as believers, we should be different. We should be different. We shouldn't be just like the world outside us. We shouldn't just be like unbelievers. The main goal outlined in the Word of God over and over is go out and share the gospel, not hide in a corner of your home scared of hypotheticals, but Jesus told us the reason why he came to this earth. He's, the Great Commission is the mission of your life if you're a Christian. The Great Commission is the mission of your life if you're a Christian, like period. John 18, 37, Jesus said to Pilate, remember that interaction? He said to Pilate, you say that I'm a king. 
I was born and came into the world for this reason, to testify of the truth. Right? Back up, though. Back up when Jesus first came on the scene. Listen to what he said in Mark 1.38. Jesus said to his disciples, Let us go into the next towns, that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. Guess what? Jesus gives us the reason he was on the earth, and before his ascension, Jesus gave us our mission. Our mission is the Great Commission. Make disciples, spreading the truth. What truth? The gospel. There's, there's the purpose. And, and if you're focused, if we're focused on everything else except for that, then we're focused on the wrong thing. So in order to fulfill the command, we must make room for Jesus. Right? So far in chapter 1, you guys, we've examined who Luke was. We looked at the life of Zacharias and Elizabeth, and now we're in uh, chapter 2 of Luke. So let's pray, and then we'll get into it this morning. Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for, again, this family that you gather together every week, Lord, to look at your word, Lord, to supplement what you've already been speaking to us. And we just pray that you would speak into our hearts and our minds and that you would continue to refine who we are, Lord, that we would be different, that we would continually change, Lord, that we would, uh, as, as <laughs> your word says, Lord, be flourishing, God, in the faith. And so teach us and meet us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 1 says, And I, it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. So the first thing we have is the census, right? And so we know that Luke was a physician. He was a pretty good historian, too. He records like very accurate details, better than the other three Gospels. But he says it came to pass. In other words, this isn't some obscure fairy tale. This is real. He says a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, and basically a command went out from the ruler to the people, that all the world. Now, this is referring to like the portion of land that was the Mediterranean basin. Okay, and so Rome had expanded by this time. So it was called the uh, Terrarium Orbis Imperium, which means the empire of the whole world. That's what it was known as. So this was the time when the Messiah was to be born, as recorded in Daniel 2.44. Now let me just give you kind of like the state of things culturally and morally at this location, like because I think it plays a huge role in the fact that there was no room for Jesus. The Mediterranean basin, it was completely corrupted. It was messed up by immorality, by destruction, by brutality. There had been 20 years of civil war, and the land had largely been neglected as towns were taken over and war just raged. Robbers and kidnappers made the streets unsafe at night for people, uh, and people would be kidnapped and sold into slavery. This was like a norm. Trade basically stopped. Destitution was the norm. Immorality was all over the place. Basically, Rome had many people living in it who had no job, no stability. They were taxed like crazy. And so we're in poverty. The rate of divorce, abortion, and adultery was through the roof. So this is the historical backdrop of the land that Jesus would be born into. And this was a chaotic time where people were desperate, hungry, hurting, and in sin. But things actually began to change a little bit under a ruler named Caesar Augustus. So during this time, it says a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Now, this guy was no saint, but he did do a few things, actually, that helped people at first. 
He defeated his rivals and so brought some temporary peace. He was brilliant in two ways, administratively and politically. He had a lot of money that he actually brought from Egypt to both help the Roman economy and pay the soldiers, actually. So by the time Jesus was born, the land was a bit, had a bit more stability and political unity, but there were other issues. See, Caesar Augustus was historically the first emperor and took over his uncle, you know, for his uncle, Julius Caesar. Julius had been building like crazy, expanding the empire, and so Augustus was in a good position to take the reins, and for about two centuries, there was internal peace in the land. See, the Mediterranean basin had never been under control of one ruler. Now it was, and there was some prosperity. There was a name for this period of time. It was called the Pax Romana, which means Roman peace. Because of this external peace, like in the land, Different belief systems and customs and ideas were actually able to be allowed and to be spread. So although Caesar Augustus did some good, remember, he was also just a man. Therefore, he was sinful. So Caesar demanded absolute power over the Roman Empire. Octavius would totally change all that was going on in the land. So Rome was a republic, but Octavius gave the title Augustus, which means exalted and sacred. So Rome went from being a republic governed by laws to being an empire governed by an emperor, which Caesar Augustus was the first emperor of Rome again. And all of this to say, you guys, all of this to say, I know it's history, you can tell I love history and biblical history, I love, but all this to say at the time of Jesus' birth, the world was hungry for help, for permanent peace, for victory, because they started to become oppressed. The people were longing for a savior. But the thing was, the people wanted a political savior, someone to overthrow the Roman Empire because the taxes and regulations and rulership was hurting the commoner. And let me just kind of like read you one prominent historian, what he said about the culture at this time. He said, in the century before Christ was born, the evidences of disintegration were so palpable in wars, in the passing of the old order and in moral corruption, that the thoughtful feared early collapse. From this disaster, the Mediterranean basin was saved by Julius Caesar and Augustus Caesar. But we must know that the uh, Principate devised the Augustus did not cure, or devised by Augustus did not cure, but only temporarily halted the course of the disease from which Greco-Roman culture was suffering. It says Augustus and his successors had not solved the basic problems of the Mediterranean world. They had obscured them. For what appeared to be a failure in government, they had substituted more government, and government was not the answer. So here's the state the culture was in. And so this census took place not to count the people, it was actually more about Rome getting taxes, more money. Taxes were hurting the people. And so I just, I just wanted to give you kind of a historical picture of how the people were suffering and having difficulty surviving. You might be looking at the gas prices go, yeah, I get it. Like, I get it, right? Yes, there was a time of peace, but at this point, people were striving to survive in the empire because of controlling and domineering person. So the people in the land listened to Caesar Augustus because if they didn't, there'd be consequences. So all went to be registered. So Caesar Augustus did some good for Rome, right? But he also was prideful and let the power go to his head. 
Same, same old story we, we hear all the time from history. He had major difficulty at home. He had an out-of-control daughter, no son. The rest of his family died young. Caesar Augustus may have thought he was powerful, but <laughs> what he really was was just part of what God was doing. Micah 5.2, God had promised the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. The scribes understood the Messiah would come from this small town in Matthew 2. So did the common people, as seen in John 7. And of course, we know that these prophecies were fulfilled. And here's the crazy thing. Through this decree, this couple from Nazareth down to Bethlehem, they weren't in the best position to travel. This wasn't a prosperous couple. Plus, she was pregnant. What does the doctor say when you're pregnant? Don't travel. <laughs> and they didn't have cars. They didn't have nice luxury vehicles, right? You're not supposed to travel. But this was God's plan. And here's, here's the point, a point right here. God will make a way. And I know you guys, can, not a lot of us can relate often. God will make a way when it seems like there is no way. He will make a way when it seems like, I don't know, Lord. Like, do we believe that? Because it, it's biblically true. It's what the Lord says. I mean, this couple was dirt poor materially, but they were rich spiritually, and that's why they were chosen. It wasn't like, who has the most money? You guys, okay, we'll pick you for the mission. No, it was about the heart. It wasn't about the external. It was about the internal. God had worked through a political ruler and actually used him as a pawn in his plan. Now, now here's an eye-opening point. So I was just thinking about this. Like, just like John the Baptist, you know, he would prepare the way for Jesus spiritually, Caesar Augustus actually prepared the place for Jesus to be born and prophecy to be fulfilled because he ordered to go back, go back to that other place. It, it's crazy to think about. And Caesar Augustus didn't even know he was being used in fulfilling Micah 5.2. Caesar was ruling, and here's a good point. Like, Just think about this. Caesar was ruling, but God was in charge. God was in charge. God used Caesar's edict to move Mary and Joseph. What's, what's amazing is that, I remember Mary had said in Luke 1.38, one of my favorite verses, in the King James Version, it says, be, she says, be it unto me according to thy word. Be it unto me according to thy word. In other words, Mary is like, it's, it's your word, I believe it. I'm going to walk in it. And from then on, Mary's life would actually be a major part of divine prophecy, God promised that a Savior would be a human and not an angel. God promised that the Savior would be a Jew and not a Gentile. God promised that the Savior would be from the tribe of Judah and the family of David. God promised that the Savior would be born of a virgin in Bethlehem, the city of David. One commentator said this. He said, if God's word controls our lives, then the events of history only help us fulfill the will of God. Everyone to his own city. Everyone had to go to their own city. Now, the idea was that the people had to travel and pay taxes, but they got to be with their family. So from the Roman point of view, they thought, well, we'll send them home, we'll be with their family. But really, they just wanted money, right? They just wanted more taxes. But still, those who were poor, like Joseph and Mary, this would not be an easy travel time. But God was with them, and it was all part of his plan. 700 years before Mary and Joseph traveled to Bethlehem, it was prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. So they were to go to Bethlehem, which Bethlehem means, a definition, house of bread. And Jesus would be called the bread of life, the bread that came down from heaven. It's amazing. This means Jesus fulfills and sustains and is the one who we look to for life, for eternal life. 
And it's fitting that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, too, because it has a rich biblical heritage. If you go back to the Old Testament, a few things that occurred in Bethlehem, the death of Rachel, the birth of Benjamin, the marriage of Ruth, the exploits of David. And you know, Bethlehem would be, would be packed at this time. You know, it would be crowded, and the places to stay were, were full. So they stayed in a cave, probably a cave carved of limestone, knowing the geography and the landscape, of limestone uh, built for animals, not for humans, as hospital rooms. A cave was the hospital room. And here's the thing. You think about that. You think of all the events surrounding this, and we have to remember God's ways may seem different and unconventional. You ever realize that? You have your way. And God's like, no, I'm going to do this totally different. And as we submit, we're like, this is way different. <laughs> like, this is so different. I don't even, okay, Lord. But when we say yes to that, we realize he comes through in a totally different way than we try to cleverly make up in our mind. And it's like, Lord, this was so strange to me in my human thinking and, and knowledge or whatever, but this is way better than anything I could have done. Thank you. God's ways may seem different and unconventional, and they often are. But isn't this how God often works? Or does he only do the expected and the conventional things that you go, you know what, I knew you were going to do it that way. Do you ever, I mean, I rarely say, I knew you were going to do that way. That way. I, I'm usually like, Lord, you, this was a totally different picture than I had in my mind. Even when it comes to day-to-day -day stuff, you have something in your mind, plans to fulfill, things to do, all of a sudden your day turns totally different, and you're like, all right, Lord, you had different plans. You work in unconventional ways. If we are truly flexible to the Lord's leading, we will not be surprised that he would do things differently than we would do things. His ways are higher than our ways, Isaiah says, right? And so continuing on, now we see the birth of Jesus in verse 4, Luke chapter 2, verse 4. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So to be clear, the trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem was no short trek in the first century. It was 80 miles. Now to us, we're like, oh, I'll get there in an hour. Like, but back then, it was, a huge, it was a huge trip costing a lot of time and resources. So according to the Roman law, Mary didn't even have to go with Joseph for, for the tax census. Like, but she did go with Joseph because she was very pregnant, a pregnancy that had a lot of, of drama surrounding it. I mean, think about it, you guys. All the talk, all the gossip in Nazareth regarding Mary's pregnancy. Mary not believing, you know, many, many not believing in the virgin birth and accusatory about her pregnancy. You know what happened? You know, all the gossip. Being betrothed, though, it was like being married. And so, as a husband, Joseph wanted to look out for Mary. And she brought forth her firstborn son. And notice how this is singular. She brought forth. That always strikes me. She brought forth. None of her family was there. No two people in the hospital room were allowed to come in and be there, hold her hand. No, no friends. No one she knew. Joseph, of course, important. But there was a separation from all that she knew. And I don't want to downplay how difficult this must have been. You know, God is there to help through every difficulty. Just a simple fact, you guys. You know that. He is there to help through every single 
difficulty. Even the ones, especially the ones where are like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. Like, I don't know how I'm going to pay, pay the, the rent or the mortgage next, next month. I don't know how I'm going to get another job. I lost my job. I, I, God is there to help through those times. And the beautiful thing is, too, as a family of God, like, we're there for each other to help. But where did all, you know, where did all this happen? What happened? So here's the thing. In 8150, Justin Martyr actually said that the place Jesus was born was a cave in Bethlehem. And in 330 under Constantine, the great church was actually built over a cave. And many believe to this day that this was the most probable location where Jesus was born. And here's one reason why we believe that Mary had more children as well, despite the dogma that she was a perpetual virgin. It says her firstborn son. Not her one and only son, her firstborn son. So Jesus was born wrapped in swaddling clothes, which were strips of cloth, essentially, and he was laid in a manger, which is a, was a feeding trough. Like, why did, you know, why did they have to do this? You think about it, what horrible circumstances. No one took them in, no. <laughs> there was no room for them in the inn. So this is unconventional. This inn was in a public place. The Messiah was born in a place where there was a lack of privacy. He was born in a town where there was no room for him at anyone's home. This is a symbolic of what would actually happen to Jesus. The crowd would turn against him. The people would reject him. They had no room for him. The only place, and think about this, the only place where there is room, where there was room for Jesus, was on the cross. That was where he was destined to go. And it wasn't just like a death and that's it. It was a death and a resurrection and an ascension so we could be saved. The only place where there was room was on the cross. Because Why? Because that's part of God's plan. We must make room for Jesus in our lives every single day so he can lead and guide and, and work in our hearts to bring clarity. He brings comfort. He mends. He gives wisdom. And the list goes on. You look at the attributes and the actions that he does through his word, and you're like, wow. I, I don't even believe how much he does, but I believe it. <laughs> I have faith. Make room for the spiritual, you guys, because it's the most important aspect of your life, of my life. What you can't see affects what you see. It affects everything. Also, there is, there is room for more to come to Christ and be added to the kingdom of God, to be saved. And that is the reason why we're still here. That's why he still tarries. There's still more to be saved. So the work on the cross, it paved the way for sinners to have their sin eradicated, to be forgiven. And I would just say, you guys, don't, let's not neglect the Great Commission and don't neglect reflecting upon what occurred at this time. This was, you know, the birth of freedom, if you will, because we know the whole story. The birth of forgiveness, if you will, because we know what happens we know the whole thing, and it's like, wow, Lord, you're amazing. He is there, you guys, to help. And this couple, I mean, it wasn't easy for them. It wasn't like, oh, la, 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 we're following the Lord's plan, so everything is great and perfect and smooth. There was no room for them. But we have to make room for Jesus in our lives. Like, we have to. He is the most important one that we should be focused on. Never forget Peter, right? That's the only way he didn't drown, by looking to Jesus in the storm. There was a storm. It was an intense storm. Freaked them out, you know. Fishermen, they should have been like, ah, oh, just no biggie, but it was a big, intense storm. And the only way Jesus stayed afloat is to look at the Almighty Savior, to look at him 
and focus on him. The reason he started sinking is not because Jesus was like, all right, I'm going to go help someone else. It was because he looked away from Jesus and he saw his surroundings and what he could see more than, a, more than his Savior. And then he started to sink. And so God will keep us, if you will, he will keep us afloat. If we keep looking to him every single day. He is our present help in our time of trouble. Right now, tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, for the rest of our lives here on this earth. He is the one who helps. He is the one who heals. He is the one who saves. It's just such good news. I mean, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. Amen?